Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. I met Lavina Talukdar in November 2020, the day a little-known biotech company called Moderna announced 94% efficacy of their vaccine against COVID-19. Lavina had joined Moderna as Senior Vice President of Investor Relations 11 months before COVID was declared a pandemic, but she was immediately thrust on the world stage as part of an amazing leadership team that achieved the unthinkable in record time. 500 million vaccines and millions of saved lives later, It's certainly been a wild ride, but one that Lavina told me is par for the course for a life lived outside of the box. I have been so excited for this conversation ever since she graciously agreed to join me. So without further ado, welcome Lavina. Thank you, Heather. I'm so thrilled to be here. So you joined Moderna at an interesting time, which I think might be the understatement of the century. It's 7 a.m. You were living in Abu Dhabi and you applied for a position in investor relations. You had little to none IR direct experience. And Moderna had all of zero commercial products in the market. So tell me what's going through your mind. So it's 7 a.m. in Abu Dhabi, and I am getting my news feed on LinkedIn because it's too early over here in the States to even have the first edition of any of the newspapers out. And I'm just catching up on everything that's going on in biopharma, which is what my specialty was as an investor. So in Abu Dhabi, I worked for the Sovereign Wealth Fund and did investing mostly in the healthcare sector with a specialty in the biopharma space. And on LinkedIn, I see this posting come up for the head of investor relations for Moderna. And I thought, hmm, I could do that. And so the technology being what it is, it's just so awesome. With a click of a button, I could apply to the position. And it said, you know, increase your chances of getting a, a call back by showing that you are connected with Stefan Bonsal, the CEO. And so I did that as well. And then after that, after giving it a, you know, a thought for a few minutes, I sent off an email to Stefan and said, hey, I just applied to this position for the head of investor relations at Moderna, and I think I can do this. But I want you to actually think this through and only consider me if you think I'm the right fit. We got on the phone And within a month, he was happy to have me join the company. So thrilled. I was thrilled to be here. And I knew that there were going to be some challenges ahead because, as you said, Heather, I had zero IR experience. But coming from the investor side of things, I often liaised with investor relations representatives. And I knew, or I thought I knew, who the effective ones were and who weren't the effective ones. And I also had a thought process in terms of what I think I could bring to the table as well. And more importantly, I really thought the IR representative role was a very important role, particularly for a company like Moderna, who at the time, as you mentioned, had no products on the market, a phenomenal team. 
and great technology that they were developing. And I wanted to tell the story and let people hear the story from my point of view, which is why I thought I'd be well-suited for it. Well, clearly you are. And I love the idea of coming into a role, not only bringing your own special sauce to it, but actually thinking this can be done in a really effective and dynamic way. What had you learned in liaising with investor relations professionals that you wanted to bring to the table? And conversely, what were the things that you wanted to avoid based on what you saw wasn't as effective? Excellent question. So there were these effective IR representatives that knew what to talk to you about, often came back to you on a timely basis. And if they couldn't answer a question, they'd get you someone internally that could answer the question. The one thing that I thought was often lacking was the perspective from the investor side of the equation, where it wasn't really clear to me that everyone understood on the IR side what it was that an investor was trying to get to from a question. And so having that perspective, I thought would really help any company and any IR individual really bring to light how to tell the story of any company or the narrative. And so that I thought was something I could do just given where I was coming from. And I thought I had, and what I was bringing to the table, this perspective of both the investor, but being able to in many ways, dumbing down very high science so that it was completely understandable by a lay person. And so that skill set also, I think, is important for an investor relations person because when you're speaking to your audience, you're going to have people from all walks of the investing world, those with PhDs, those with very minimal science education. And so being able to communicate that at the level that is easily and readily understandable, I think is absolutely an important attribute for an IR representative, particularly for a firm like Moderna. It was Warren Buffett that said he doesn't invest in anything he doesn't understand. And the role of an IR individual is to help as many people in the audience, the investor base, understand the company as intimately as anyone internally would. Yeah. It's like you've been in their shoes. And so you're really speaking to them, not just with the lens of corporate speak, and this is the story, but spending it in a way that's really relevant. What's something that people get wrong about Moderna? So now, just mm-hmm. given the success of our COVID-19 vaccine, it was the ultimate proof point of the technology, particularly in the vaccine space. Moderna is doing a lot more outside of vaccines as well. But in the early days, there was really a question on whether or not this technology was going to be what Moderna thought it was going to be, which was a new approach, a new class of medicines, a different way of designing, developing, and delivering medicines to patients. And I was convinced from being an investor in the company and doing the due diligence, it was going to change the world of medicine. And so there was this challenge of helping people see what I saw by connecting the dots That was a skill that I was homing in on ever since I started in this business back in the late 90s. 
And so I thought what I was bringing to the table, this perspective of both the investor, but being able to, in many ways, dumbing down very high science so that it was completely understandable by a lay person. So let's dig into it and talk about the technology, which is obviously at the core of this new face of what's possible in medicine. And now it's something that rolls off of our tongue, but messenger mRNA, when you joined, that was not something that rolled off the tongue. Walk me through it and walk me through its utility outside of what we know, which is a vaccine for COVID-19. So we're going to have to dive into a little bit of a biology lesson. And it's like eighth grade biology, actually. So hopefully the audience can follow along. So mRNA and the relationship around mRNA is a very ancient but important one for all living things. And so right in between DNA and proteins is this very important molecule known as mRNA. And mRNA is a transient molecule. It is an instruction set of certain segments of your DNA where all of this information that tells us who you are and keeps you healthy is housed. And mRNA uses little parts of your DNA to encode for proteins, which can be the hair strands that are blonde, or it can be the insulin molecule or protein, which keeps you healthy. When you have lunch or any meal, your body will release insulin to make sure that the sugar levels in your bloodstream stay at a healthy level and don't damage any of your organs. So if you had a faulty instruction set in your DNA, that didn't allow you to make insulin, for instance, you would likely have diabetes and no longer be healthy. And so this critical molecule in mRNA is that instruction set that instructs your body to make the important proteins that it requires to remain healthy. Wow. I do love the way that you kind of unpack it. I've read a lot about it and I kind of understand it, but I have a different perspective now, which shows how good you are at your job. (laughs) The team at Moderna talks about breakthrough innovation, not just as a stroke of luck, but a repeatable process, looking at novel spaces and encouraging unreasonable ideas. What have you learned about the innovation process and how has it been evolving since you've joined? So we talked a lot about this ancient molecule, mRNA. It turns out the molecule itself is very fragile. You so much as look at it and it could disintegrate. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's very hard to work with. And in fact, during my due diligence process in looking into this company, that would come up often with outside experts that I would speak to on the mRNA molecule who'd say, this is never going to work. So there was always this skepticism out there. So in order to overcome skepticism, you almost have to innovate around what everybody already accepted as truth. That is what the scientists at Moderna do phenomenally. They refuse to accept that truths that are out there should remain truths. And in fact, why wouldn't it be possible to 
make mRNA a viable molecule. And so this endeavor is really what kind of launched the company itself. It was that sense of asking, first, what if you could turn mRNA into a viable option for medicine? And two, how would you do it? And so they embarked on answering those questions and engineered and used really the convergence of technologies, lots of things happening in the life science space that helped them understand how to overcome some of those challenges of mRNA being a very unstable molecule. And as they figured that out, they also patented all of this stuff, but also innovated around the delivery of the mRNA molecule as well. And as the convergence of these different parts of the technology came together, it was becoming readily apparent that you can use mRNA then as a vaccine or as a medicine. And so the company then started working towards clinical trials to prove out that they had, quote unquote, cracked the code. Tell me about March 2020. The company was on a trajectory and then had to really pivot and be laser focused on kind of achieving the impossible in record time. I imagine people were working around the clock, stakes were high. Tell me about what you took away from going through that period of time. People were absolutely working around the clock. And I was amazed at this sense of responsibility that everyone felt internally when they thought that we had potentially a solution to this emerging problem. And at the time in January, 2020, I would guess that most folks outside of, you know, the Eastern part of the globe still thought, oh, it's not going to come here. It's not going to happen here in January, 2020. And yet the folks inside of Moderna thought, well, if it does, we're going to be ready for it. So there was this massive onslaught of work that needed to be done for us to be ready for something like a epidemic or a pandemic that it eventually turned into just in case. And so we started all of that work internally here. The good news was we had already developed many other vaccines prior to the COVID-19 vaccine. In fact, a little known fact is that it was really our 10th vaccine that we were about to then take into the clinic. And so we, you know, we used a lot of that know-how and expertise and understanding of our technology to help us move as fast as we could with the COVID-19 vaccine. And it took us two days, I believe. And that two days was only because we wanted to make sure that every piece was in the right place before actually moving into um, the clinic with this. It could have taken maybe even a half a day to get the design of the vaccine together. But nonetheless, two days is good enough. And once we did, we started manufacturing the first lot that would be going into the clinical trials for the phase one. And within about 42 days, the vaccine was ready to start clinical trials. And we were partnered with the National Institutes of Health to help with that trial. 
And I imagine in the midst of all of this, you're ramping up and you're hiring. How many people were at the company when you joined? How many people are there today? And how can you maintain that culture that was really founded on this idea of a deep responsibility as you grow? Yeah. So we more than doubled for sure from January 2020 to now. I want to fathom a guess and say we were probably at the 500 employees mark in January 2020. And we're close to, if not, we're moving so fast, if not above 2000 at this point in time. So definitely fast pace in growth. And you bring up a a really great point, which is how do you keep that culture and that that secret sauce of how everybody here interacts still part of the company's DNA. And it's difficult. And yet somehow the human resources department here has been phenomenal at identifying what it is that makes each individual at Moderna such a good fit for the cultural values that we have here. And they've, you know, kind of stuck very hard and fast to like looking for those attributes, you know, being bold, being curious, being relentless and collaborative, making sure that we're all working and rowing in the same direction. Those tenants are what everybody was looking for in the new individuals that we were interviewing to get to bring on board. So far, I think we've done a phenomenal job in keeping that culture alive. And when you get that spark from someone and you know that this is something that's beyond them, it's beyond really just what you know, Moderna can offer them, but what they can offer Moderna and then by proxy, what we can offer the world. And I think that that idea of purpose and finding meaning, making a difference, being part of something greater than ourselves, I do think is something many individuals would say they want to sign up for, but it's hard, right? And it it takes a lot of grit. And as you said, just relentlessness. What's been the hardest part of your job? So prior to the pandemic, it felt as if my role was really to kind of evangelize the story, right? And I was knocking on every investor's door, trying to get them to understand the technology, the company, the management team, and their role on how to execute and everything that they needed to do to ultimately prove out this technology and hopefully have the impact you know everyone here thinks we will have on human health and that was a lot of traveling a lot of phone calls a lot of putting together the dots of what would make for a strong thesis in the future of Moderna from the investor standpoint And then came the pandemic, and we were, as you earlier said, thrust onto the world stage. And everyone was scrambling to understand what is it that Moderna could bring as a solution to the problem on vaccines and vaccinology, which in the investor space prior to COVID-19 was kind of like a sleepy area where you had the incumbents 
that were out there. The technology, the traditional technologies were already pretty established. Even though the folks internally at Moderna were starting to see through the nine other vaccines we had taken through the clinic, the potential impact that mRNA technology could have in the vaccine space, we didn't have a product on the market. So that ultimate proof wasn't there. So there was still a lot of the skepticism around whether or not mRNA would be a strong vaccine or not. And yet now we had this opportunity to prove that out. So the interest from the investor side perked up. And so that was then probably 80 to 90% of my day explaining how this technology could eventually change vaccinology. We made sure that we educated the investor base and really all of the general public because there was such interest now in immunology, vaccinology, the old technologies, the new technologies, and how we all were going to get out of this situation, this emergency situation we found ourselves in. Tell me what it was like when you received those first results about the efficacy. Like, were you guys just like jumping up and down and hugging each other? And, you know, in a way there was no moment for celebration. You had to go, go, go. But I just tell me what it was like and where you were when you heard. Yeah. I wish we were all in a room. We could give each other high fives and hugs, but unfortunately the pandemic was raging. I remember it was Saturday and I got the call from Stefan and he said it was 94% efficacy. And I just like, I, I was speechless and I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Right. I mean, I, for, it took me a few seconds to like muster up the words. Like so many thoughts were going through my head, like, thank God. But I remember taking the call and, and knowing that we were now going to be drafting the communications on the results and just feeling a sense of relief as well, mm-hmm. because, you know, as you I'm sure know, we were the second one out with our results and coming in 94%, which was a phenomenal result. And having this sense of, I think that we're going to have a handle on the pandemic now was just overwhelming. So incredible. Tell me about what you've learned observing Stefan and in his role and any lessons you've taken away from how he's been a leader in this time. So many lessons. He embodies relentlessness, right? He's always thinking about what's next. Often he comes in with this, how does everything from here grow 10X? And it's this passion for wanting to make sure that the technology that the team here has developed is utilized and optimized to the utmost. So as much impact as it can have for patients, for individuals, all of us are healthy individuals when we get our vaccines, how can he then take it to the next level? 
And he's been in the biopharma space for a very long time. I think he started his career at Eli Lilly in the manufacturing side of things. He subsequently led a biodiagnostics firm in France as the CEO there. So he was always around the space of health. And he's drawn on his experiences of what's worked in the past and also reinvented the way he thinks about things because you have to when you're dealing with a brand new technology. And so that melding of his experience, as well as learning new things and reinventing how he thinks about things, is something that I love to see happen right before my eyes. What do you think he's learned from you as the leader? I think what he's learned from me, and this might just go back to who I am as a person, which is. I don't see any role as being limiting whatsoever. Yes, we as society like to say, well, an IR individual or an investor is very good at one, two, three things. And so maybe that's not the person to ask a question on thing number four something completely different or out of their sphere. And yet I feel that I've convinced him through our interactions that he could come to me and talk to me about thing number four, even though I may not be an expert in it. And so maybe that's not the curiosity in me is something that I think he takes away as being more comfortable in terms of bringing up things and just wanting to hear my opinion on stuff, right? And so that to me is something he probably has learned from me that there isn't a box that everybody sort of belongs in. But if you like the way someone thinks and their thought processes, then you could take them out of their box and empower them to actually think through things with you. And so I think he's learned a little bit of that from me just because of our interactions and almost me quietly demanding that I could potentially solve some of the problems or questions that we're dealing with that have nothing to do with IR, for instance. But ultimately, because of the way we think and strategize on other things, that there's that skill set that could also help with a different question. I love that idea of quietly demanding. It reminds me of something we talked about earlier. And you said, you know, I'm very anti-pedigree. Talk to me about that. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm anti-pedigree because pedigree to me puts everybody in a box, right? Mm -hmm. And so pedigree, the way we know pedigree is, you know, as an example, your upbringing or the schools you had gone to. And so oftentimes you'll find society putting folks into boxes themselves based on where they are and who they're interacting with. And pedigree is that set or that environment that you find yourself in. It's that 
process of like then having everyone think similarly if they have a similar pedigree, even if you are of a completely different ethnic background or religious background, the fact that you're in this environment probably has you thinking more similarly to your you know, counterparts than anything else. So why would we want to enforce that then in any kind of thought process? Diversity of thought to me actually comes from diversity of background, of environment, of upbringing. And so pedigree doesn't fit into any of that in my opinion. So a person from school XYZ who is of Asian descent or a person from XYZ school that's of Native American descent or a person from the same XYZ school of Hispanic descent, despite their differences, may actually have thought that's not as diverse as it can be had we decided to take each of those individuals and put them in a room and, you know, speak to each other. If they all came from different pedigrees or, you know, schools. And so as a result, I'm very anti-pedigree because it doesn't allow for diversity of thought, in my opinion. Amen. I love that. And I think it's a angle on this topic of diversity and inclusion that we're all talking about, that's a really important one. If we keep looking in the same places, hiring the same kinds of people, we're going to just get the same results. And and obviously it's a time when there's just so many problems to be solved. We need diversity of thought. What are you most excited about in terms of what you're working on now? And as you look ahead for Moderna? I'm going to highlight the personalized cancer vaccine program for you guys. There, we are literally personalizing medicine where we take an individual, sequence the cancer cells themselves, try and find the difference between the cancer cell or the tumor and the individual's healthy cells. And those differences, we believe, could help wake up the immune system to then attack the tumor. And we do this in combination with a very successful drug on the market known as Keytruda. And that particular Merck's product takes the breaks off the immune system. So that synergistic effect of having Moderna's PCV, personalized cancer vaccine, unmasking the tumor and Keytruda allowing for the immune system to rev up and attack the tumor, we think could potentially lead to many more patients living cancer-free once the combination is approved. So we're in clinical trials right now, waiting to see if in fact that synergy exists. And We announced that we have fully enrolled a randomized head-to-head phase two trial where we're looking at the combination versus Keytruda alone. And there, we want to show that there is a higher percentage of people living cancer-free 
because of the combination versus Keytruda by itself. So those results will likely be available towards the end of 2022. It's really the impact that it can potentially have on cancer patients that is invigorating. So I can't wait for those results to come out. The thing that I'm most excited about, we touched a little on, which is this sense of reproducibility where let's take vaccines, for instance. Now that we've proven out the utility of mRNA as an approach in vaccines with our COVID-19 vaccine, the question then becomes, are there other vaccines that will have similar potential and impact? And we think, yes. Once you prove out that in a vaccine, for instance, there is high utility in using our platform to making vaccines that are successful, then it should hold that each subsequent vaccine using the same technologies will be just as high in terms of probability of success. How many viruses are there that we all live with that we wish we didn't have to live with or had defenses to? So what if mRNA was the approach, the vaccine approach to stop RSV and to stop CMV infection and help millions of people avoid hospitalizations, deaths, and you know, birth defects? That would be something that's remarkable. Another way to kind of think about it, every year, I either get the flu, and if it's not the flu, I get some cold during the winter season, and it's usually related to other coronaviruses that have been endemic with the human population for many, many years. And yet I accept that. I'm like, okay, it's October. I'm probably going to be sick 10, 15 days out of the whole three months um, of the winter season, and I just accept it. But what if there was a solution where every year I get a vaccine that combines different viruses in that, you know, antigens against those viruses in that vaccine that would keep me healthy for the whole season? And I wouldn't have a day where I don't feel 100%. That was unthinkable. That may no longer be the case if Moderna's technology is proven to be safe and effective in a combination vaccine that protects you from all of those ailments during the winter season. Well, I mean, healthy and free. I don't know if there's anything better, you know, than that in terms of what you're working towards. So the podcast is icons in the making, and it's really about the changing face of what an icon is and what an icon can do. And so I have to ask, who is an icon to you? So... I've given this question some thought in terms of who is an icon to me. There's so many people that I can kind of speak to, but the one person in all of history that stands out to me that does that the best is Leonardo da Vinci. And even though I could say, yeah, it's the Mona Lisa and that's why it really isn't just the Mona Lisa or it isn't even the Vitruvius man or any of his anatomical drawings or even his engineering ability. It's the fact that he never thought that he was limited in doing anything that he set himself up to do. So he could be 
a painter like no other painter in history. He could be a mathematician like no other mathematician. And so there wasn't anything that he felt was too big of a mental task for him. And he would just go out and do it. And I love that in any individual. And in fact, anything that I could kind of look at and say, yeah, I could do that is what I think is iconic behavior. And he embodies icon for me. I love that. I want to thank you so much. I know that you've got a full day, a full week, a full month, a full year of really important work to do, but you are incredible. The work you're doing is incredible. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you, Heather. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.